1936 was a year when the world was in the balance between fear and hope. The anarchist-turned-Bolshevik writer Victor Serge referred to it as midnight in the century. The Nazis were in complete control in Berlin. In Moscow, Stalin was consolidating the counter-revolution by putting on trial on trumped-up charges the last of the old Bolsheviks and having them shot at dawn. But 1936 was also a year when the working class around the world began to recover from the Great Depression and from mass unemployment and began to fight back. And so it was the year when workers at General Motors in Michigan, Flint, Flint uh, in Michigan in the United States, did the great sit-down strike in their factory. In other words, a factory occupation. And they broke the company and they helped establish the basis for a wave of mass unionization amongst blue-collar workers in the United States. 1936 was the year when the Palestinians launched what was to, to be a three-year revolt against the British imperialism and against the encroachment of the Zionist, uh, Zionist settlers. In France, there was the election of a popular front government, a government of socialists and communists and supposedly radical republicans. And almost instantaneously, a mass wave of strikes broke out across France, including massive, including massive factory occupations as workers fought to claw back what they'd lost over the preceding decade. So it's in that context that the situation in Spain is of huge importance. Which way would the pendulum swing? Towards fascism or towards revolution? And the pendulum was in motion all year long. In February 1936, a popular front government was elected. Again, socialist communists and supposedly radical republicans. And the working class began to move into motion. The ruling class in Spain was much, much uh, less able to buy off the struggle. In France, one of the ways they managed to get workers back to work was with massive pay rises and the institution of things like uh, holiday leave. In Spain, the, the, work, the ruling class uh, was, had far fewer resources. The Spanish economy was much more reliant on agricultural exports. The values of those exports were still very low because of the overhang of the Great Depression. And so the ruling class said, no, we can't buy off the workers. We're going to have to crush the workers. And on July the 17th, General Franco launched a military uprising from his base in Spanish Morocco, a colony in North Africa, to bring down the, bring down the government. And the working class and the peasantry responded with absolutely revolutionary fervour because they'd already been through situations where supposedly progressive governments offered them improvements. There was a Republican government in 1931, and every time the workers went out on strike, it sent in troops to smash the strikes. There were peasants who seized the land, and the government sent in troops to smash the peasants. So on this occasion, the workers and the peasants weren't just going to fight fascism, they were going to go well beyond what the Republican government had to offer. They wanted control of the workplaces, control of the land, control of their lives, and an end to, end to capitalist rule. And within a few days, the workers had essentially seized control of the major barracks in the biggest cities. In some instances, they fought the soldiers. In some instances, they convinced the soldiers to shoot their officers and come over to their side. In one city, they actually booby-trapped the entire barracks with, 
with uh, big cans of petrol inside the houses around the barracks. So if the soldiers came out against the revolution, they could literally set up a, a wall of flames. And within a matter of a, a few days, the, uh, the main city barracks were in the hands of the revolution. Within the matter of a week, most workplaces were in the hands of the workers, factories and public, public transport, and in particular in the province of Catalonia. And Barcelona is the capital of, of Catalonia. Catalonia had more than half the Spanish working class concentrated in its ranks, and that's where the revolution, revolutionary flame burnt, burnt brightest. But the peasants, too, set up collectives. The workers established militias, they armed themselves, they patrolled the streets uh, of the cities to prevent fascists from uh, counter-attacking, but they sent out uh, columns of uh, workers', workers militias usually under the control of one or other political party, in order to take on Franco's troops. And as they passed through the countryside, and in particular coming out of Catalonia into the neighbouring province of Aragon, they said to the peasants, we are with you, kick out the landlords, burn all the paperwork which proves uh, who owned the, the land beforehand and who owned, who owned what debt and the other, and we will guarantee that you keep control of the land if you, if you support us. And so there was a dynamic process that uh, unfolded uh, in extraordinarily quickly. And, and incidentally, the sailors took control of the Spanish Navy. They shot their officers. Uh, they, that was a much more straightforward process. The sailors are really metal workers. They're factory workers. They work with equipment. They're much more proletarianized than soldiers who usually come from peasant backgrounds. And within a very short period, power, in particular in Catalonia, had really fallen into the hands of the workers' militias and the, and the workers' collectives. The Central Committee for Anti-Fascist Militias, which was led by the anarchists grouped around the CNT Union and the FAI uh, political party, to all intents and purposes, controlled Barcelona. And George Orwell arrived in Barcelona to fight for the revolution against the fascists and famously said that for the first time in his life, he saw the workers in the saddle that this was a city effectively under workers' control, under workers' occupation, that the rich had been pushed out. And there were some immediate practical gains. In Barcelona, the number of jobs increased. Public transport fares went down. Aid was, was uh, raised for the agricultural collectives in the countryside. There was the beginnings of a social, social security system. And in the countryside, and in particular in Aragon, where the collectivisation by the peasants went deeper, deepest, um, productivity over the next year on the land rose by between 30 and 50%. Food that could feed, feed the workers in the cities and the militias on the front line. So what you had emerging quite quickly was a situation of dual power. And what we mean by dual power is that there are simultaneously two centres of governmental authority existing side by side. There's the old capitalist state that we know, know and love. Now, in Catalonia in particular, the leader of the capitalist state went to the workers' militias and the collectives and basically said, I'm at your service. Now, that wasn't true. He was buying time. But, uh, the, um, but it still existed. The capitalist state still existed and certainly existed in Madrid uh, at, at the national level. But there is also another source of authority, which is the workers' own organisation. 
And when that happens, increasingly workers go to the workers' organisations for solutions for their problems rather than going to the government. And so two sources of authority side by side, but this is an inherently unstable situation. It can go maybe for months, but it cannot go for years and years for a very simple reason. The ruling class will not allow its power, its privilege and its wealth to be taken away without a fight. They will look to weaken the workers' side and therefore look for an opportunity to launch a fight to smash the workers' insurrection. On the other side of the fence, the workers' revolution has to go further and do what uh, Marx talked about, learning from the Paris Commune, smash the existing state and build new institutions of mass democratic control that flow directly from the direct producers, from the workers uh, and, and, fr and from the peasants. And that, that fight was, uh, has another importance in this context because Franco was not going to be beaten by conventional military warfare. He had the majority of the army on his side and sections of, of the ruling class and quite quickly uh, gathered a base in a, a number of the major cities. If a, a war was to be fought as a military operation, Franco would win. And that's what happened three, year, three years later. If Franco was to be beaten, he had to be beaten primarily politically. Because no general fights a war. They get the soldiers to fight for them. And who were the soldiers for Franco? They were Moroccan conscripts and they were the sons of peasants. Morocco was a colony. Morocco wanted independence. If the workers' movement declared unambiguously that its victory would see the liberation of Morocco, why would a Moroccan soldier fight for Franco? If the workers' movement declared unambiguously that the land would go to the tillers, to the peasants, it might be nationalised, but it would be under the control of uh, the collect uh, pe peasant collectives, and the landlords would never return, why would a peasant fight for Franco? And so the deepening of the revolution wasn't just about cheaper bus fares, it was also about uh, defe defeating fascism. And that's one more thing I think that has, needs to be said about this situation. Revolutionaries of this period raised the slogan, better Vienna than Berlin. In Berlin in 1933, what is arguably the most powerful working class in the world surrendered without firing a shot to the Nazis. And in, a year later, the Viennese working class at least fought back as the, as the fascists came to power. And the slogans went around the world, it is better to fight and lose than give up without a fight. But in Spain, the possibility was uh, clearly on the agenda, not just to fight the fascists and defeat them, but to defeat the very system that, that, that fascists were defending and which uh, bred, bred their ideas. So how were people to respond to this situation? The popular front government in Madrid was fundamentally rotten. It was a capitalist government that for two days after Franco launched the coup lied to the people. It said, everything's under control, everything is calm, you don't need to do anything, relax, we have it under control. And the reality is the popular front government, which was led by Republicans, bourgeois Republicans and the right wing of the Socialist Party, was more than willing to cut a deal with Franco if Franco was willing to cut a deal with them. And that's why there was a delay. And it was only after the fall of a couple of cities that the workers realised that we, they couldn't leave it to the Popular Front government and they had to go on the front foot. For the Popular Front government, the reality is, while they feared fascism and they had no, no um, sympathy for Franco and the fascist agenda, 
they feared worker, workers' revolution more. They were more worried about the overthrow of capitalism than they were about fascism coming to power. And that's very clearly illustrated in the Basque country, which is in the north of the Spanish state, um, uh, bordering, border, bordering France, and which at the time was one of the more industrialised regions. And in that area, the popular front was run by the capitalists, full stop. And they refused to fight the fascists. They refused to engage them militarily. They fell back and surrendered town after town. And then in the end, they surrendered the provincial capital, San Sebastián, because they would rather have a fascist regime where they could actually still control their factories than a workers' regime where they would lose control of everything. The, uh, another significant player in this, in this scenario are the Stalinists, the Communist Party, or well, they operated slightly differently inside Catalonia. The Communist Party was uh, actually quite a small party at the beginning of the revolution and was utterly marginal in Catalonia, which was the homeland of, uh, of working class resistance. But one of the major factors they had on their side was both the prestige of the Soviet Union and the willingness of the Soviet Union to supply weapons and, and uh, other mili military materiel, which, went, which gave the Communist Party real leverage in, in national politics. But there was always a catch. The, the aid could be turned on or turned off if people stepped out of line with the agenda that was coming from the Communist Party, but ultimately from, from Moscow. And Moscow's agenda by 1936 was not socialist revolution. It was to um, uh, 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 bolster international alliances that the Soviet Union could rely upon if and when a Second World War broke out. From the, so from the point of view of Stalin, yes, he wanted the prestige of being a fighter against fascism, but he also wanted to guarantee to Britain and France as major imperialist powers that Spain did not represent a threat either to them directly or more importantly to their, to their uh, colonial empires. And so the Stalinists set out to white ant uh, uh, the revolutionary process. On the 6th of August 1936, Jesus Hernandez, editor of Mundo Obrero, which is Workers' World, which was the Communist Party newspaper, said, it is absolutely false that the present workers' movement has for its object the establishment of a proletarian dictatorship after the war has terminated. We are motivated exclusively by a desire to defend the democratic republic. But if you wanted to defend the democratic republic, which meant capitalism and the property owners and the landlords, then you risk demobilizing your side. So to get around this, the Stalinists popularized the slogan, fight Franco first and fight against the capitalists later. And they dragged behind them a whole series of forces, in, in, including the left wing of the Socialist Party. And in order to dampen down the revolution, the Stalinists were the first to argue for censorship of the revolutionary press. They were first to argue that the militias had to disarm and that uh, the fighting had to be done by a professionalised, in other words, bourgeois army and, and police force. And they criticised those who, took, who uh, raised their fist against the Catholic Church, which was hated uh, ac across Spain. They bolstered their forces by recruiting business people into, 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 their, into their union. And as they grew in power, they were prepared to snatch revolutionaries, whether they were of anarchist or Marxist flavour, off the streets, put them in secret prisons, 
kill them and throw their bodies back out for the dogs. There was absolute viciousness coming from the Stalinists to crush, to crush the revolution. So what was the response of the revolutionaries? There were three kinds of revolutionary in Spain in 1936-37. The first were Trotskyists, and the truth is they were tiny handfuls of activists, primarily in Catalonia, and despite their best efforts, they were utterly marginal to the events because a handful of people in the middle of a revolutionary maelstrom cannot grow fast enough or big enough in order to have an influence. There was a Marxist party. It was called the PUM, the Marxist Party of Workers' Unity. PUM is the Spanish initials, which had 10,000 fighters under arms in Catalonia and on the neighbouring Aragon front and grew quite rapidly in the course of the revolution. But the POOM was what we call centrist. It talked revolutionary talk, but actually fell away and, and drew reformist conclusions when, when the pressure was on. And then there was the biggest revolutionary force of all, which was the anarchists. The anarchists had a million members in 1936. They had the mass allegiance of the working class in Catalonia, which was the core of the revolution, the core of the work, working class movement. No cheap shots here in this meeting about anarchists being disorganized and not having parties. They were very organized. The CNT was a serious fighting force. The FAI was a serious uh, union organization. It, the, uh, the problem was with the anarchists was not a lack of organization, but a lack of political clarity. And that really manifested itself in, in, in two ways. Firstly, and most importantly, around the question of the nature of the state, and secondly, around the question of the party. And I'm going to spend more time on the state than on the party. Now, what is the state? For Marxists, drawing on uh, the lessons of Karl Marx and, and the later writings of Lenin, the state is ultimately a force of coercion, a body of armed people, that is used by a minority ruling class in the ultimate analysis to oppress and uh, coerce and suppress the majority of direct producers. Most of the time, the ruling class is happy to rule by, uh, by consent. But when consent no longer keeps people under control, they will use brute force. And we're seeing that in, in France today, as we've seen in many other places around the world. And so the state is a, is a weapon. So we are for the smashing of the state. Marxists do not believe that we can take hold of the existing state and use it in some way just gerrymandered into something kinder and easier. You know, the, the police, the army, the prisons, uh, and, and that whole apparatus which is at the core of the state is fundamentally about a minority controlling a majority by brute force when and if, if necessary. But we also argue, and we have the experience of the Paris Commune and then of the Russian revolutions, that the, overthrow, the immediate expulsion of the capitalists from the factories is not enough in itself to deliver a, a socialist, or let alone a classless society, an immediate victory. Even when the workers and the oppressed become the majority, they still need organisation, they still need structures not to oppress a, minority, a majority, but actually to ensure that the capitalist minority does not fight back, either from within or from without. But a worker state is quite different to a capitalist state. It is a state which is fundamentally democratic, based on the election and re-election of delegates who are responsive and responsible to, directly to the workers uh, who, who elect them. 
and it is a state which, in its essence, is doomed at some point, not doomed, but is happily going to, at some point, wither away as the resistance from the old ruling classes is defeated. When the majority-run society, society, we do not need guns in order to enforce discipline. We have mass participation uh, to do that. But the anarchists rejected all forms of state. They rejected the capitalist state. They rejected a healthy worker state, as we saw at the beginning of the Russian Revolution in October 1917. And they failed to distinguish between the healthy worker state in 1917, 1918, and then the degeneration that, uh, that had taken place by then with the Stalinist bureaucracy enforcing a new state capitalist society. To, to the anarchists, all forms of government were bad, all forms of state were bad. And that the seizure of the factories was in and of itself enough to dispossess the capitalists and to guarantee some kind of victory. So this led to enormous confusion. There was a Republican government elected in 1931, the anarchists actually responded by, by welcoming it and saying that the bloodless revolution is still more possible. Then in October 1934, that government fell. A, right, a very right-wing party came into, into government. The unions called mass protests and a general strike. The miners in the Asturias region rose up and with dynamite in their hand held off the army for two weeks. What did the anarchists say? It's just an argument about what kind of state it is. We reject all states, and they abstain from that struggle, with the exception of the Asturian miners. And then when you come to 1936, because the anarchists reject in advance the possibility of a worker state emerging out of the revolution, out of necessity, when the fascists are at the door, they collapse in behind the capitalist state as the only mechanism available to them. And the anarchist leaders said this, talking about um, uh, the fact that the anarchists join the, the uh, Catalonian government in September 1936. They rejected all governments, but they joined the government and then the national government in November. And they said, either we collaborate or we impose our dictatorship, meaning the dictatorship of the working class. We did not seize power because we were unable, but because we did not wish to, because we are against every kind of dictatorship. So in that confusion, they went from rejecting all states to actually collapsing in behind uh, support for the Popular Front government, which, especially with the, the Stalinists rising in influence, was guaranteed to keep capitalism uh, um, uh, in, in Spain during and after the, the Civil War period. And what happens in quite quick succession is a series of most remarkable uh, retreats by the CNT, which, remember, is in the government. It has ministers in the government at this point. So there was a decree in October 36 to disarm the workers. The CNT just published this without comment. And yet the arming of the workers was the guarantee that workers could keep control of the factories. Then the anarchists went along with the need to placate France and Britain. Actually, the Stalinist agenda of ensuring, uh, of encouraging the great powers to believe that the revolution was really not too radical after all, and they could send arms to the Republic, republic um, uh, without, uh, without fear of revolution spreading. And Garcia Oliver, a former Minister of Justice, put it this way in July 1937, talking about the need to try and get arms from France, an anarchist. 
we had to create the impression that the masters were not the revolutionary committees, but rather the legal government. We had to accept governmental collaboration. There was always an alternative. In France, across the border, there had been mass factory occupations. The working class was on the move against uh, the fascists in, in France. The CNT could have sent out some of its best agitators across the border to argue for the French workers to, uh, if not rise up, at very least prevent the French government from crushing the Spanish Revolution. But they never lifted a finger in that regard. In 1937, the Stalinists, as I've mentioned, were pushing uh, an agenda of censorship, not on the fascists, but on the revolutionary forces. And the Poom were the first victims because they contained elements of what the Stalinists regarded as Trotskyism, but also they were the first victims because they were smaller than the anarchists and they knew if they could defeat the Poom, then they could take on the anarchists in turn. The anarchists did not object to the censorship of the Poom and the CNT ministers in the, federal, in the national government did not object even when the censorship laws were used against anarchist media. The anarchist leaders then went on to vote for the re-establishment of the police force on the conditions it was depoliticised. In other words, it was part of a normal capitalist state. They agreed to a centralised army at the expense of the militias, but it was the militias which was the guarantor of the control of the factories and the work, of the workplaces. And then in April 1937, as they retreated and they retreated politically, they came out with a 100% endorsement of the bourgeois government, uh, popular front government, led by the man Companice in Catalonia. Not a word of criticism, not a word, not a word of attack. And essentially, the argument that the Stalinists have put, that we, you need to unite to fight Franco and we will deal with the social revolutionary issues later on, was increasingly one that was adopted by the, uh, the CNT leadership. And I say the leadership because there was always a major difference between the CNT leaders and the mass of CNT supporters. Actually, the CNT supporters wanted to rip the head off the system. Lenin said he actually preferred an anarcho-syndicalist to a parliamentary socialist because the anarcho-syndicalists wanted to destroy the system uh, where the parliamentary socialists wanted at best to reform it. And the mass of CNT supporters were for revolution and, and, and for the gains of the system. And sections of the anarchist media, media called out their leaders. There was the development in Barcelona of a, dare I say it, a Leninist trend within, amongst the anarchists with a group called Friends of Deruti. Deruti was an anarchist leader who fell in the defense of Madrid. And the Friends of Deruti began to argue for a, a serious revolutionary party, a recovery of the, uh, the working class uh, dynamism from 19, 1936, control of the workplaces, the building of links between those workplaces, and so on. All of this, all of these contradictions come to a head in May 1937, when the Stalinists essentially launched their assault uh, on the anarchist control of, of Barcelona. I don't have time to go through the details. But when the Stalinists marched troops from the central government towards uh, Barcelona, the CNT's response was, stay calm, everything is normal, do not block the troops. And the reality is the Stalinists took that weakness and they pushed it back. The workers threw up barricades. The CNT rank and file threw up barricades. To their shame, the PUM 
told its members to leave the barricades, and shortly afterwards the CNT leadership likewise told their members to leave the barricades. And leaving the barricades at that point was the death knell of workers' control of, of industry, of any kind of move towards uh, social revolution. And the anarchist rank and file was furious. They tore up the newspapers, they shook their fists at the, uh, ra uh, the radios, where, where the anarchist new technology, where the, uh, the anarchist <laughs> leaders were using the radio to, to get their message out. But the reality is there was nothing they could do. And really, that was the end of the revolution. It flowered in July 1936. It was effectively dead with the defeat of the anarchists by the Stalinists in, in Barcelona in May 1937. The fighting continued for two more years, but it was always uh, uh, a circumstance where Franco was going to win a military uh, 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 confront confrontation. Very last point in closing about the party. The problem with the anarchists was not that they didn't believe in parties. They had a party. The FAI was effectively uh, a mass anarchist party. The trouble was what was missing was a party that would say no to joining the Popular Front government, which is a party of capitalist continuity. Yes to building workers' control, and from workers' control, let's build workers' councils that, uh, that, that um, integrate workers' control across cities and across regions and, and become a, an, a genuine alternative form of governmental force. A, a party that never lied about whether the Popular Front was going to deliver socialism, that always argued that the workers had to take it into their own hands, always argued that Morocco should be free, always argued that the land should go to the peasants, and always looked for opportunities for unity and action with the rank and file of the CNT and the POOM against the fascists, all the better to build mass opposition, not just to the fascists, but also to the capitalist system that the fascists uh, fa uh, 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 came from. And therefore, the closing note is quite simply this. One day, we will have Spain. One day, we will be on the streets. One day, we will be building barricades. One day, we will be taking control of our workplaces. It is absolutely essential that we learn the key argument. If we're going to defeat fascism, we're going to defeat capitalism, we need to build a mass revolutionary party that is absolutely serious about uniting the working class and ripping the system out by its roots. <laughs>